Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Modern fantasy owes much to J.R.R. Tolkien including his problematic colonialist views and othering of cultures and races different from his medieval European-inspired setting. Many authors since then have used historical accuracy as a defence against a lack of diversity in their similarly inspired settings. But even if we gloss over the fact that this is fantasy and not realism, it simply isn't true that medieval Europe was monochrome. And yet these troubling representations continue to be regurgitated and undissected in a lot of contemporary mainstream fantasy. Today we are talking to Eliza Chan about the lack of representation of diverse characters in fantasy and also the problematic othering and exoticism that can sometimes be employed, even today, when characters are people of colour. Eliza's novel, Fathom Folk, imagines a world where two cultures collide, humanity and the mythical, and what happens when immigration and housing shortages are brought into play in such situations. So, Eliza, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Nah, <laughs> only kidding. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> okay, if, if you'd have twisted my arm. Um, I'm Eliza Chan, and my debut adult fantasy novel, Fathom Folk, is out in February 2024. Um, before this, I've written a lot of short fiction, mostly fantasy and a bit of horror. Um, so Fathom Folk is my story of what if The Little Mermaid was actually a pissed-off immigrant in a semi-flooded East and Southeast Asian-inspired cityscape, and it was never about the love of a man, it was about the love of her home. Um, I'm a Scottish-born Chinese background author, um, as I'm sure you can figure out from this accent. It's a wonderful accent, I have to say. It works very well for podcasts, apparently. I think it does. It does really work. (laughs) So, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, a a common defence of these predominantly white cast in a traditional epic fantasy, you know, it's based in medieval Europe, at least an analogue of it, and, you know, the culture at that time was not as diverse as it is now, you know, but that isn't entirely accurate. I mean, these, you know, I see these kinds of defences all the time. George R. R. Martin is famous for basically saying that, and then you go, (coughs) maybe not. You know, what do you make of these kinds of excuses? I think it's something that comes from a place of having read other books before you and and basically emulating those books you might have been brought up with. And, you know, when I say you, I include myself. Like I was born and brought up in Scotland. I did the same thing that I'm sure many of us did, you know, picked up the Tolkien and David Gemmell and um, Terry Brooks when I was a teenager. Loved these sort of books and those are the stories I started writing. And I think to move outside of that and to accept that that isn't truly what the world was like takes a bit of reflection. And I think a lot of people, 
either coming to read or to write fantasy don't don't necessarily think of that reflection they think I, I just want something fun and fast and furious and to them it's a bit of the same and I think we do have Tolkien I'm unfortunately to blame for that sort of setting up this is what epic fantasy looks like I also blame a lot on TV and media um, if you think of the fact that when moving away from fantasy for for example cowboys like the reason that we think it was so white um, in sort of cowboy era America is because they mostly hired white American actors and when they did the sort of John Wayne days. And I think similarly in fantasy, whenever it has been filmed for film, um, film or TV, it has mostly been a white cast. And so people see that and that's what is ingrained in your brain from what you saw as a child or a teenager, those years that really influenced you and you just assume that they were right and they you know nobody really thinks well I'm now going to go and read 12 historical books on this and it's only when you have conversations with the right people or you go out of your own way to reflect that you would actually think wait a minute that's actually more to do with Hollywood or that's to do with the writer and their biases of the era they were writing in rather than historically accurate because most of us as kids assume what adults tell us is right. And so you go, well, the adults have told us that Europe was white, therefore they must be right. And you just don't think to question it until places like this give you a bit of a prod. Well, having read Fathom Folk, I have to say that that's not an issue with your book. Your book has so many diverse characters and there's just... The, the wealth of characters is, is just overwhelming. It's, it's fantastic. You've got an incredibly diverse population. And I, I wondered whether the book was written as a direct response to reading so many predominantly white books and going, you know, stuff this, I'm going to write something that I want to read that has people I recognise in it and has, you know, people that everyone will recognise in it. Or was your motivation something else entirely? Did it just kind of grow organically? It was, uh, to be to a total cop out, it was a bit of both, um, basically. So Father Folk originally, it came from my love of mythology and reading a lot of mythological stories about um, water, water-based water um, shapeshifters and sort of humanoid creatures. You're thinking all over the world, there are different sort of mermaid-like creatures. You know, there's Rasalkas, there's um, Mamawata, there's, you know, all sorts all over the world um, coming from the sea. And I don't know why, but something in my head really clicked with immigration coming from the sea, you know, like obviously before airplanes, it was migration happened over the waters. Um, and that those two things together was my my seed. Um, the reason it became so diverse, I guess, is I did actually, the first draft was set in a sort of London, Manchester, strangely enough. Um, but then I really struggled with the world building um, because it's quite hard to write about stilt houses and boat houses in a, a very British setting because it's not really something other than maybe canal boats that that we really do anymore. Whereas actually, if you move over to East and Southeast Asia, there are entire communities that do live in, in flooded environments. They live in stilt houses. You know, there there's a lot of different groups living on the, the water all time. And I think that's how it evolved slowly. My other massive thing I think that I aimed for was um, Fathom Folk is more of a, a modern city as you've touched on rather than your medieval sort of epic fantasy and I was really tired of seeing Hollywood where they would show multiculturalism in cities that were basically London and New York. They were always 
Western cities. Here we are, look how multicultural we are in the West, you know, that we would see um, black faces, Asian faces, you know, it was great. I love it. But there was almost this assumption that multiculturalism only happened in the West. It looks different in Asia. Like if you go to Singapore, it's not going to have the same makeup, but it is multicultural. And it is so in most of the big cities across the world. It may not be at first glance. It may not be what you think multiculturalism is because Hollywood, I feel, and TV is taught as multiculturalism is mainly white people, but we've got diversity now. So we've got some black actors in, we've got some Hispanic actors in, and, and that's how it looks. And I wanted to counteract that and say multiculturalism exists in other places, but it looks different to what you're used to. So mine is very much based off of a Southeast Asian model. So it's more like how Singapore, maybe Ho Chi Minh, um, a bit of Hong Kong thrown there in there would look. So um, it's mainly East, Southeast and South Asian. Um, but there are some sort of white people in there and black and brown faces, but that's the majority. Um, and that's, yeah, my very convoluted evolution of why it became what it became. So is the real world setting that Fathom Folk is based on, is it somewhere that's close to your heart or is it somewhere that just kind of fitted the the design of the city you were looking for? Because you mentioned obviously Manchester <laughs> being the first one and then you, you went halfway across the world. Is that because you kind of went, yeah, yeah, no, that's the look or is it like, no, I've been there and that's, that's the place that I feel I want to set it? Do you know what? I think... It was, it was where I wanted to set it, but I think it took me a while to get there. And, you know, I, I listen to your podcast a lot because I love it. And I think when you've had other writers of colour on, people have often mentioned that when we were young, you know, my characters were all white and it takes a while for you to go, wait a minute, I could sit, you know, have someone that looks like me um, as front and centre. And I do think with this, I was doing the same thing. I was going, well, well, it's a city, so it, it has to be British because I know British cities well, or, you know, it has to be Western. And it was only when I started it and it wasn't working and I, and I kind of went, but why am I even doing this? And I had to question myself and my own biases and go, this makes no sense that I'm setting a bunch of Asian people in the middle of a British city. Um, and once I sort of moved that world building, everything clicked into place. So I can't say, well, 100%, like, it was all in my heart, but I think it was definitely the right decision for me and the story flowed so much more once I'd done that. That said, I quite like the idea of Manchester all flooded with stilt houses. That, that'd be quite a, an interesting piece of artwork if you ever did fan art. That'd be amazing. It would be amazing. But I think I think I looked at them trying to see if like the elevation of Manchester and like what would be flooded first. And I think by the time Manchester's flooded, I think like half of Britain's gone. And I was like, hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's, that's probably not a workable economy, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you talk about kind of being constrained by sort of what you know. And also, you know, in terms of where you've lived, where you've grown up, but also what you've seen in other fantasy stories, in, in the books you read, the TV you consume, because that's kind of one of those other excuses you hear people talk about, like, oh, well, you know, that's not my experience and I don't want to write from that and so on. But it's like you write about dragons or come up with completely fantastical other worlds and yet what? You can't 
imagine a world that might look different or have a different makeup to the one that you see around you. And I I just wondered, like, what what do you make of, of that as as another excuse, you know, the imagination being so constrained by our kind of like learned <laughs> kind of cultural context versus actually letting our imaginations run wild where we, you know, why do we feel comfortable letting our imaginations run wild with fantasy and magic and whatever else, but not with cultures and peoples that we populate those worlds with? I mean, I can't speak for everyone because I don't know what's going on in their heads, but I think there's a fear of the amount of research you have to do if you're touching on sort of real life cultures and, um, you know, countries and traditions that aren't your own. There's a real fear now of, I can't do it right, so I won't do it at all because I might get in trouble with the cultural appropriation police. Um, And that is almost like an excuse that's used by a lot of people then to go, in which case I'm just going to write quite a homogenous society. Because you like, I think you look at science fiction and you say, no, like they've been doing this for years, you know, look at Star Trek and Star Wars. Uh, look at what um people like Becky Chambers have been doing, like imagining completely alien civilizations and, and ways of living and anatomy. And it's it's done so well and you end up as a reader being sucked into these worlds and completely believing in them. Um, I think there's a very fine line between being aware now of of what's going on and being respectful and just using that as an excuse to not do it at all. I think sometimes it also shows, especially people that say, yeah, I don't know how to write it or I can't really like empathize with it whatever perhaps perhaps you should go out and, and read some more diverse books or you know watch some different media you know just go and experience a, a world outside your own viewpoint in real life as well and see how you feel um you know I can't I can't force people to write or not write you know it's it's ultimately it's your decision I think as long as we keep having these discussions that's the most important thing but yeah I, th- I do think there's a fear of the research and and getting things wrong so much that you don't do it at all. And to me, that's a worse outcome than giving it a go in a, in a respectful way um, or, or, as I say, going to the science fiction version and just doing something so wildly different to anything on Earth that, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Speaking of, like completely scientific uh, sorry scientific um speaking of you know this the sci-fi model of like having aliens and things that are completely out there which i personally love coming from growing up with star trek and star wars and just being an absolute nerd which listeners of this show know well already (laughs) i mean the kind of the Flipping the coin on that is that when people of color are included in fantasy novels or even in science fiction, you know, they do kind of disproportionately still appear as as kind of the dangerous and exotic creatures, you know, much like, you know, for better or worse, Star Trek often has, you know, the the new alien of the week comes around and they're like, 
ooh, scary, and they just can't get on with them because they're so completely different. Although, at least in Star Trek, it's usually all works out in the end, which I love, the uh, the hopefulness of it all. Um, <laughs> the hope that Kirk will sleep with the new and exotic alien. I mean. <laughs> well, yes, Kirk in original series and in, you know, in next gen, we've got Riker, you know. He, he's always there for a bit of boning. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Back to my point. <laughs> rooting. Yes, rooting. Yes. I was, <laughs> before we started recording, I was teaching the girls some uh, Australian slang there for you. <laughs> so, you know, when they're the representative of these kind of the exotic, you know, they'll they'll appear as like con artists, slavers, you know, they they practice dark magic or they're savage warriors, or they're just sort of Straight up, they're just basically the the evil versions of this fair-skinned racial cousins, like, you know, elves in D&D. You've got, like, the light-skinned elves, and they're all good and happy and have good magic, and then the dark-skinned elves are evil and, uh, you know, and this is oh, so problematic. Um, <laughs> but, you know, why do you think, like, this exoticism of people of color when they are included is still so bloody common in fantasy? Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, it is, isn't it? And um, going back to your comment about Star Trek and stuff, I have to say, Deep Space Nine, I think, does it so much better than the other series of, yeah, of it's not an alien of the week. You actually slowly learn their culture and their differences and their viewpoints. And I love Deep Space Nine so much for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but yes, back to your point. Um, I think... I think it's partly to do with, unfortunately, real life. And the way we are presented in the world is very us versus them and it is in the media in the news you know pertinent to what's happening even today um it's us versus them and and we always have to have someone that's other so that we can be united as a group and we can put the blame on someone else and historically that has often been other nations who have other skin colors and other traditions um and it's you know can i blame the victorians and everything yeah let's blame the victorians um (laughs) That's what they did, you know, during sort of colonization. It's like, well, these people are lesser, so it's fine that, you know, we're going to treat them as slaves or um, at least as, as servants because their their brains are not as developed. And and this rhetoric, you would think, oh, you know, what, 100, 120, 30 years on, that we would have moved on from that. But it, it's just very ingrained, sadly, and in, in certainly in, in Western sort of media and books and even in our education system sadly and so I do feel like some of those tropes that are continuing to this day and you would think come on it's 2023 like let's let's move on from that and you know there is obviously some effort to move on there's a lot more writers of color that are getting their foot in the door but by and large a lot of it comes from that I also sadly need to blame like D&D and, and role-playing games like oh I've, I love things like Dragonlance growing up but after a while when you start looking at those systems that have quite rigid rules about races it becomes incredibly uncomfortable but they are the sort of fantasy land tropes of as you have you said the, the, the elves are fair-skinned and intelligent but you know, unemotive and a bit cold. Um, and over here we have the orcs that are violent and, you know, aggressive and 
you just go, yeah, you're you're clearly all of these can be sort of um, related to one cultural group or other, and it's really quite traumatizing for me when I enjoy playing an RPG, but then you see those real systems and you think, no. But I think that is by and large what a lot of at least English written fantasy is based off of. And I I would hope that it's starting to evolve away from that, but it's still prevalently there. You mentioned in that question, uh, us versus them. And it made me think of the fact that in Fathom Folk, there is a distinct divide between humans and sea folk. Um, And I wondered what principles you had in mind when you were writing about such a divided society. I mean, was there elements of real world conflict in there, whether it was racial or religious or anything like that? Did you draw on anything real to kind of put into your books to make it feel that way? Or did you just kind of go, well, you know, these people have gills, (laughs) they're going to be a completely different set of conflicts and, and start from scratch? Um, no, I, I definitely think I was considering the immigration um, when I wrote this book. And I was considering people like from my parents' generation who moved over and have settled in other countries and have raised their children who, you know, like myself are second generation. And, and the feeling that you will never quite fit in in the same way as some of your friends because you look different. And to me, that was very much about the gills um, and the very physical difference in some of the Fathom folk, that they will always stand out. So one of my main characters, Mira, she's supposed to be second generation. um, And, you know, it's the only place she's ever lived is a city, but she is still always treated like an outsider because of her physical difference. Um, And I do feel a lot of folk from diaspora communities across the world have that tension and that sort of conflict of where do I fit in um you know you get the awful comments in the street of like go back home you're like what home this is literally the only home I have like um and going actually to the country that perhaps your parents your grandparents are from that's no more home to you because you you weren't brought up there and culturally that's different too so I wanted to reflect on those feelings of identity and and place of belonging um I also wanted to look at what's happening right now in our society with um it is very much us versus them with migration um in the media and the sort of anger around that and thinking well ultimately we all migrated at some point, you know, like, you know, people love doing those DNA tests and, and they go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm one quarter Scandinavian. And you're like, yeah, at some point, you know, everyone's people migrated. Um, so that was very much a question I was trying to answer. But for me, it was really important that I didn't just provide one answer because there isn't one. And the way I view it will be very different to another um, person of colour, another writer, you know, because it's a very personal journey, which is why I, I had to make it a multi-point of view story. Um, because there is no right or wrong answer. Um, it's 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 a journey of reflection. Um, the other large part for me in the Fathom Folk is originally I was like, should they all just be mermaids or sirens? But I've actually done a whole range, um, and that was again because 
within a community, like to an outsider that looks like, hey, there's this Chinese community and they have Chinatown and they all eat Chinese food. I'm sure. Um, sorry, I'm sure you guys know. <laughs> no, it's not that um, homogeneous. But, you know, to an outside, the outsider's eye that happens. But within that community, there are lots of little interracial prejudices there are you know people that think well well, you don't speak Chinese or you don't do this cultural thing or there's all sorts of little things going on um at that level that that outsiders don't see and and I really wanted my story to focus on even though it's a story about prejudice and you know sort of racism the the main focal point is within the community all the differences of opinions that you might not necessarily see as an outsider. Yeah, I totally get it. I'm I'm very lucky and also kind of horrified sometimes because as someone who's lived in so many different countries but they tend to be westernized countries. So I just blend in. People don't look at me and think anything different because I'm white and I just sort of fit in. And I remember, you know, once going to the hairdresser when I was living in the UK and the hairdresser was talking to me about, you know, foreigners who just need to go home and stop stealing our jobs and stop this and that. And I just said to her, you know that I'm a foreigner, right? <laughs> like, mm. maybe don't say that to me. And then she just went, yeah, but you're the right kind of foreigner. And I was so horrified. But then also, you know, it's it's another one of those moments like, okay, I need to check my privilege because clearly there is so much that I don't experience as the, the kind of foreigner that I am. Yeah, it was just one of those moments of like, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. I'm guessing you had to find a new hairdresser after that. <laughs> yes, I, I didn't ever go back. <laughs> that's that's oh. one thing. Ah, anyway, uh, <laughs> I wanted to pick up on what you mentioned about like RPGs and D&D and things like that because, uh, yeah, some of those the strict rules. And I mean, there are, like I mentioned earlier, like D and D with like, you know, elves that are white, like fair skin versus the, the elves that are dark skinned. And you, you have, you know, again, coming from Tolkien, you know, orcs are often dark skinned and various things like that. You just have this kind of standard way of like color coding basically in these fantasy realms but there's that other thing of like the half, you know, the the half elf, the half gnome, whatever it is, and it it pops up a lot in in the the fantasy we read, as well as sort of in these D um, and D and other role playing games. And it's weird how like they're specifically called out as being in between, and then yet nothing is ever really examined i mean obviously you're saying you know in fathom folk you do actually examine that but like why or what is it about this is you know the the half race character that we we get like how is that problematic and like what do we we see come out of that that maybe needs to be addressed a little bit more um yeah, half elves. I used to love reading about half elves when I was a teenager, and I think 
it features in a lot of that um, epic fantasy sort of realm of here's the half-elf who is the tour guide to the other. Um, so they're a bit exotic and different, but, but you know, like human enough that, that we can understand them, that, we, that they can, yeah, be the tour guide to this weird culture that's unlike our own. Um, and yeah, I grew up, I'm, I'm sure I could say the same as, as a lot of people loving that because for me as someone that felt a bit different, it felt like, oh, that's me. Um, and I'm not biracial, so I can't speak for other, you know, people that are biracial and they have differing opinions. But as, as I got older and read more things, I suddenly started thinking, like, firstly, why is there one job, the tour guide? Like what, what makes, you know, it's, it's this odd sort of idea that just because they're biracial that they're they're literally a halfway house and you're like it doesn't work like that because you know some biracial people are you know fully brought up in in the other culture they're not going to be any better a tour guide than you know someone that's brought up in whatever you want to call your human culture whatever in your D world i think the other thing that i started noticing is it's always half elf half orc generally they're always half with human, right? And if human is basically the stand-in for Western culture in most of these um, sort of fantasy tropes, so they're always half something weird and human and and white, Western, you know, European, because European Westernness is the centre of everything. You don't see someone who's half elf and half orc with with not not any of the human Westernness in there because that's just too weird, but in reality, that is a lot of, you know, mixed culture, mixed race folk. You know, it's, it doesn't have to center around the westernness of it. And once I saw that as well, I got so annoyed because then you think, yeah, why, why does it have to be about you guys all the time? Um, but yeah, so I think it's then realizing, yeah, there can be narratives centered around other cultures. There can be narratives centered around mixtures of cultures that do not have to have any sort of western focus and that is okay and actually we should also be enjoying those narratives because they're they're different and you know they will they'll be really interesting to read um rather than bringing it back and it's sad and I can't get from a commercial point of view why there's this sort of fear that it's going to be too foreign if we if we have two cultures and, and neither of them are western but you know what I, I want I want that I want the the mashup of two different worlds that have nothing to do with Europe. Bring it on. Let me read it. That's what I say. I kind of feel like we've got a lot of books that are set in a Western world. So it's just time to have, you know, greater representation and, and more cultures out there just to make some better and more interesting books. Um, I mean, like I say, although I love the idea of a flooded Manchester, I thought your setting was amazing and it was so immersive and so different to what I normally read. And I just I just loved it. And for me, the setting was as a bigger part of it as the characters. But thinking about um, European sort of focus of books and things. Um, given the poor state of representation of cultures and races outside white European ones in traditional and contemporary fantasy, the burden of positive change often falls on BIPOC writers. So what sort of expectations do you find fall upon these authors? And, and have you found that this has limited your writing in any way? Um, yeah, well, thank you first for your nice comments about Fathom Folk's world building. Um, I think... 
I think there's there's it's, it's, it's a bit of a double edged sword. Being a BIPOC writer right now um, is at the moment there is a bit more attention on diverse worlds, which is lovely. But there is this real fear, I think, um, within um, speaking to other writers of colour that it's a trend, you know, like vampires were in or, you know, dystopians were in. Guess what? Diversity's in and that it's going to end and you've got to jump on that bandwagon as much as you can right now. And it's horrible to think of that as a trend, but there is, like I say, it's, it's the real, like, worry that, that that is what it's viewed as, as the publishing world, and hopefully not. But it does plant a lot of seeds of doubt, you know, because all debut authors, I'm sure all authors in general have the um, imposter syndrome fears. But I think particularly when you are from a, a different background, you, you you wonder a lot if maybe I was just a diversity hire, maybe I was a tick box in someone's list, maybe the story is actually terrible. Um, but you're just, you know, fitting into this trend and that, you know, no one's ever told me that. Those are fears in my own head, but they're they're an extra layer of fear that you have to combat, I think, as a, a writer um, from a, a different sort of background. I think the other thing that I've heard from a lot of other writers is this idea of it's all biographical. Now, obviously, I have mentioned that some of the elements I've taken are, are reflections on my life or things I've pondered, but clearly I'm not actually a water dragon as much as I would like to be one or a siren. Um, this is not autobiographical, but I have heard a lot of writers um, being told, oh, um, I'm so glad that you taught me so much about your culture. And they're like, I'm writing fantasy. Guess what? I made some of that shit up. I think I heard a story from Ken Liu back in the day when his um, Paper Menagerie short story won all of the awards. Um, and apparently someone came up to him and was like, I can't believe you treated your mum like that. It was just awful. He's like, I didn't. I I'm a fantasy fiction author. Um, and there's that also worry, I guess, of stop assuming everything I'm writing is some sort of tour guide to the real life culture. Because even like it's based in it, it doesn't mean it's exactly the same. I mean, I'm hoping, for example, that people who read Game of Thrones aren't going around going, well, this was based in British history. So clearly we all write dragons. I mean, it'd be lovely if we all wrote dragons. Um, but there's that level of, I'm not here to educate you. I am a writer. I'm here to entertain. Um, if you learn something and you want to go read, you know, where these mythologies, whatever came from, great. But that wasn't the point in it. Um, and I particularly think for me at the moment, the term Asian fantasy is is. I wouldn't say very trendy, but there certainly are a few writers that are grouped under the Asian fantasy umbrella. But what does that even mean? Because, you know, if I said British fantasy, what does that mean? Terry Pratchett? Does that mean, you know, like Neil Gaiman? Or are we assuming they're all, all of the writers under the umbrella of British fantasy are writing the same thing? No, they're completely different. But the, the term Asian fantasy is quite reductive. And what ends up happening is readers that like, a subgenre of Asian fantasy, so it's more like more like Xinjia or Wuxia, are then coming to like things like Jade City, or I worry that they would come to Fathom Folk and expect the same sort of narrative. And you're like, 
no, they're completely different. So yeah, that's that's some of the worries going around. And, and I can hope that as they write, they publish more authors from different backgrounds, that that becomes less of a fear. Um, but let's see. Do you think that BIPOC writers, if, say, if you tried, you tried to hand in a manuscript that was based more around the traditional European setting fantasy, that mm. they would then say that, well, that's not what was expected from you. That's not, you know, you can't write that because you're an Asian writer and you belong in the Asian fantasy category <laughs> and that sort of thing. Like, do you think it limits you that you have to write? Even even if you would prefer, obviously, to write about people who look like you and, and want to have that representation, but do you feel like you're not really given a choice? It's a hard one to say. I, I mean, I've never had that discussion of my publisher and I, I would hope not. I I don't know how much of it is... Like I say, your own fears of, well, what seems to be selling right now is mythology or um, things like that. So that's what I'll lean into. You know, obviously, people like Jeanette Ng um, had great success of Under the Pendulum Sun, is that right? Um, Which is Victorian fae and it's not really got anything to do with her cultural background. It's it's an area that uh, they they really enjoy writing and studying. Um, But I think right now, I think, yeah, the... I've not seen a lot of that since, and that's quite a few years old now, isn't it? Um, I don't know is my answer. Um, I would hope there was space for more. And like, I think that is what I was subconsciously doing with Fathom Folk because I've, I've not leaned into the Asian epic historical fantasy that I think there are a lot of writers have. I have done a modern cityscape with water folk because I'm just that way inclined. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll post it to my publisher tomorrow and see how they feel. I think the one thing that a lot of writers of colour are worried about is a lot of the industry seems to want trauma stories. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I just want some, you know, like, okay, I wouldn't say Fathom Folk is a happy living your life story, but you also want there to be space for cosy stories as well as the trauma stories and, you know, the whole range rather than just focusing on that. Yes. No, I totally get that. We're about to run out of time. So obviously you've talked, we've we've sort of mentioned Fathom Folk a couple of times. Uh, do you have like a sort of pitch to leave us with? Because the book is coming out in February, I believe. Yes. Yes. So you need to pitch it to our listeners so that they are super excited. Go and pre-order and um, get your book. <sighs> Hey, pitching. <laughs> I know. I kept the, the hardest thing to last, yeah. So Fathom Folk is a modern fantasy. So I would say if you like things like Jade City, if you like Shang-Chi, if you like things like Neil Gaiman's American Gods, that's the sort of feel I'm going for. If you it's full of angry women making terrible decisions. Um it touches in a lot of mythology from across the globe. So we've got water dragons, Kelpies, Kappas, Selkies, um all sorts thrown in there. There's a bit of revolution because why not? Um and it's all set in a semi-flooded 
sort of cityscape. Um, so if that sounds like something absolutely wild and like nothing you've read before, then you should pre-order it now. It'll be out um, end of February, US and UK um, by Orbit Books. Awesome. Well, Charlotte is a big fan and I've yet to get my hands on a copy. So, well, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to it. <laughs> but thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me on. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.